Well, good morning. Um, the elders believe that about every year or two at the maximum that we uh, have a teaching time on giving. And I drew the short straw and, and got to be the one who, who presents this message today, to have this opportunity to talk about a, a subject that I, I hope is well received and uh, hope to present it in a way that isn't just about how well you're doing, but just the concept of giving in general. I think that most of you would agree that uh, giving and receiving of gifts is an enjoyable experience. And our culture is just uh, filled with gift giving. We have multiple holidays. We just passed one Christmas, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day. For gift giving, we have uh, gift giving for many special occasions, whether it's graduations, birthdays, weddings, new babies, new houses. We give gifts. That is the way we live. That's the way our culture is. It's a gift giving culture. And as I say, generally it's a positive experience, but it can be stressful. I, did, I tried to find some survey results about how people feel about gift giving, and, and even though this was a Pew survey, that even though 80% of the people really said it was very enjoyable to participate, half of the people still said it is stressful to give gifts. And you probably would agree that even just giving of Christmas gifts is a little stressful. Do I have enough money to buy what I want to buy? Am I buying something that the person wants or I just can't figure out what the person wants? So gift giving can be stressful. Even receiving can be stressful, uh, especially as you get older like me now. You, you think, well, I don't need anything. I don't want my son or somebody spending their very limited resources on buying me a gift. So don't buy me anything. But you know what? As an older person, there are some things that I would like. Maybe not a material gift, but I might like something that doesn't really cost so much or anything, like a little time together, a kind word, a smile, a um, even a letter would be really nice, a card, even, even a text. Just knowing that uh, from those people you care most about, you still like to receive those kinds of gifts. So um, this really... I guess I would say that I want to get to the main point of what this message is and then get into things. But if a gift is given without self-centered ways, like trying to receive some favoritism or trying to think you're going to get something in return, it is a good thing, and it should be part of the life of every Christian to be gift-giving. And so that's... Uh, that, that's the main point of what I'd like to talk about today, and then a lot of biblical concepts that relate to giving. But when we look at the Bible, we find a lot of information about giving, a lot of guidance, a lot of uh, truth about what giving is and what giving shouldn't be. Um, and I think what we really would see, the first thing that most of us are familiar with, and I Sorry about that. We all know this verse. God loves a cheerful giver. He wants us to be givers, and he wants us to share those blessings that we have received from him, and he wants us to do it with the right attitude. So this is a very common verse that we're all familiar with. And uh, somewhat related to what Kathy was up here saying earlier, 
uh, about standing before the Lord, we've all thought about standing before the Lord and having him say, well done, good and faithful servant, when we stand before him. But wouldn't it also be nice to stand before the Lord and have him say, one thing I really love about you is you were a cheerful giver, Um, because that is important to him. So uh, Jesus taught us a whole lot about giving, right and wrong ways to give, and we're going to get into that. And he, uh, he commanded us to give. He condemned certain kinds of giving, and he commended certain kinds of giving. And we're going to look at what some of those are. But I want to really start out with talking about the concept of what is a gift. First of all, a gift is not a loan, and it's not an investment. And even though this is a long definition, I want to read through it because what I've done is I've assembled a bunch of ideas into one long definition of what a true gift is based upon the teaching of of several people on this topic. But let me read through this. A true gift can be money, an item, or something intangible given to another person or an identifiable organization without any expectation of payment or payback of any kind. It is an offering made from the heart to address a perceived need or can be to express thankfulness, appreciation, or affection. It is given because the giver believes something or strongly cares about something or someone. A gift is not an exchange between two parties. It is not a deal or a trade. It is freely given and it is one way. The receiving party can reciprocate, but a true gift is unconditional, expecting nothing in return. And that definition applies to whether we're giving to the church or to an organization or to an individual. Now, we have something going on in the church today that prosperity teachers that are out there have distorted true biblical teaching regarding giving. They begin with the idea that it's God's will that every one of his followers should be wealthy. And that one reliable way of achieving that goal is to give in order to receive. So these teachers have taken certain verses out of context. They tickle ears with their teaching and attract many followers because it sounds, sounds like a good thing. Give to receive. So I'm going to go through a couple of the verses that they most often have used and not have a a major uh, discussion about each of those as to why this is not really what is being taught here, but just to give you an idea of what you might be hearing out there about this concept of giving to receive. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6, it says, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly, meaning in their mind, don't expect to get wealthy or receive a lot back if you only give a little. Jesus' words in Luke 6.38, he says, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Again, sounds like they could use it for that and build a whole teaching upon it. Uh, Not on on the overhead, but another passage that I thought about that's commonly used is Malachi chapter 3, which is about the tithing. And we're going to talk a little about tithing later. But there they teach that it is equivalent to stealing from God if you refuse to give a full tithe. But 
If you bring the full tithe into the storehouse, if we test God in this manner, he will throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. One other uh, verse that's commonly used is from Mark 10, 29 and 30. They, I saw an idea that is presented, called that, which they call, several different teachers call the law of compensation, that if a person invests their wealth in spreading the gospel, God will not fail to repay them a hundred times as much in this present age. So if you give ten dollars, you get back a thousand. If you give a thousand, you get back a hundred thousand. And that is something that you will actually hear taught by certain of these prosperity teachers. And it sounds, this whole idea uh, sounds like a common practice that a lot of them are, us are familiar with in both the political and business wor worlds. It's a Latin term called quid pro quo, and it means a favor for a favor. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back, and it can apply to our personal giving, whether to the church or others. And I would uh, just say that though some of these verses may make this concept sound right or maybe even fair, it isn't what Jesus taught us, and we're going to look at a couple of the things that Jesus taught about this giving to receive back material wealth or more money. So uh, one thing that I'll mention is that the rest of verse 30 in Mark 10 says not only will you receive 100 times as much, but it talks about receiving persecution as well, and they ignore the second part of that verse. 30. Uh, they only talk about the first part and they teach it to mean something that really isn't true. Now, um, unlike these teachers, Jesus taught that we should not give to receive anything back. On the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, I believe, Kent, you probably taught on this at one time or another, that he told us that we should not expect to receive anything in return when we give, even if we give to our enemies. Now, God may bless our giving, and that blessing can be in the here and now. It can be in forms of joy, peace, abundant living. But we are also look at blessings by laying up treasures in heaven uh, as part of that blessing. We aren't sure when it may occur, and it doesn't mean God will never bless our giving with more material wealth. But it isn't an automatic promise, and we should not expect it. So God's word gives us right reasons to give and wrong reasons to give. It gives us right attitudes to give and wrong attitudes to give. And right amounts and wrong amounts to give. That last one's a little less certain. Uh, but the others, there's some pretty good biblical guidelines there. Now, in preparing for this lesson, I came across a humorous story that I'm going to share that helps us understand in one little short story some of those right reasons, wrong reasons, right attitudes, wrong attitudes, and so I'll, I'll present it. I, I doubt that this is a true story, although I couldn't tell from, uh, from what I looked at and read. But there was a man who had a five-year-old boy, and this man seldom went to church. He more typically was on the golf course on Sunday morning, and that's where he definitely would prefer to go, but occasionally he would cave into his wife's uh, desire and attend. So one morning he attended church with his wife and five-year-old. 
Well, he sat in the pew and uh, grumbled throughout the service inwardly, but obviously from the look on his face, he was not real happy. When the end of the service, close to the end of the service, arrived, they passed the offering plates. We don't do that here, but in his church, they passed the plate. And under the watchful eyes of his five-year-old son, he placed some money in the plate as it passed by. So we get to the end of the service. He hurries out with his family, gets in the car, and drives home, and he begins grumbling outwardly now to his family about things that he didn't appreciate or like so much about spending that time in church, like the hard pews, the loud music, the long sermon, the uh, judgmental attitude of the pastor who was preaching. But then his young son looked up at him and said, Yeah, Dad, but it was a pretty good show for only costing us $1 for all three of us. And I found a picture of somebody putting $1 in the plate. And we know that if he would have been in his normal place on the golf course, he would have spent probably $50. And so uh, from an amount point of view, he obviously did not give with the amount that he should have. He had the wrong attitude. He sure wasn't cheerful about it. And uh, he only did it because people were watching and felt that he needed to uh, also put something in the plate when it went by. Now, Jesus taught more about giving than just not expecting to get a return or, on our investment. In the Sermon on the Mount, he also said, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It's pretty clear from this teaching that we shouldn't be giving to receive the praise of men. We shouldn't be giving to see our name placed in some list of givers. I know a lot of you probably are part of uh, college alumni, and you see those brochures come out that give like once a year, all the givers. And you probably turn to see whether your name is there, if you are one of those givers, or you look and see whose name is there. But we shouldn't be caring about getting our name published in a list like that or on a plaque or wherever else it might show up. And I think we can also take from this that it's wrong to give in hopes of gaining any kind of fame, power, influence, or favoritism. All those things are about self-centeredness and pride and that's one of those things that God hates. Now, here we got a few verses, and I'm going to leave this one up for a while because we're going to talk about several of these uh, one at a time, and I'm going to intersperse a few other ideas about the concept of tithing and also how we're doing in lion and lamb in giving. So, uh, first of all, I would say that Paul taught that giving should not be about guilt and we shouldn't be grumbling and we should never tell anybody how we sacrificed we to give for example um, I didn't take that vacation this year because you know I just really wanted to make sure I continued to give to the church or give to this or that um, we, we shouldn't be pointing out our good giving 
and make people believe how we've sacrificed to do so. Just do it. Now, in I, I only read that very short little piece of 2 Corinthians 9, 7 at the beginning about God loving a cheerful giver. But the uh, more complete rendering of that one, uh, let's see, I seem to have, here we go. Sorry. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And um, here's where I'd like to insert something about tithing. We've all heard about tithing. It's part of the Jewish law, or was part of the Jewish law, about giving 10% of all of our income to the work of the Lord. Now, some Christians still believe that we're called to tithe. Others don't really believe we are. But I think we would find that neither Paul nor Jesus lead us to that conclusion. Neither of them emphasized the need for their followers to continue to tithe. Instead, Paul, you know, he said, in this verse here, each of us should give what we have decided to give in our hearts. Now, he could have very easily said, as part of that, that we're still called to give 10%. I, I don't think you'll find anywhere where that he continues to teach that. Now, whether tithing is a hard and fast rule for Christians, we might ask ourselves, is it still a good guideline? giving 10% of our income. Well, I would say yes, it's still a good guideline and there's nothing wrong with you deciding that's what I'm going to follow. But I think we need to also um, consider that in some ways as a starting point, especially those of us who have adequate wealth to maybe do more than that. And I think we should look at um, what Jesus really believes would be appropriate giving, and we will come to some of that as I go forward here. Um, we're all familiar with the uh, observation that Jesus made in the temple when he saw the Pharisees giving and the old widow giving. And that's from Luke 21, and it says, As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow in put in two very small coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty and put in all she had to live on. Now, did he commend the Pharisees who tithed in everything that they had? No, the opposite. In some ways, he condemned their giving, which was equivalent to tithing, because they did so out of their wealth. There was no self-sacrifice, no self-denial, no impact on their way of living. They continued to live that good life, but they tithed. So he did not see that as commendable. But he did commend the old widow who gave because she gave sacrificially. Okay, now I'm going to talk a little bit about giving within lion, lamb, lion and lamb, but we're not going to get into a lot of detail. I want to say that our giving is, we do pretty well, giving in lion and lamb, especially as compared to the statistics that I saw nationally. 
I would call us a relatively generous church, at least comparatively so. And that's noteworthy because we're really not a wealthy church. We're not poor like some, but we're not wealthy like some. I don't have the 2016 numbers yet, but in 2015, we identified 69 regular givers in Lion and Lamb. That could be an individual or a family. Of those 69 regular givers, the total given was $284,000. And that's an average of $4,123 per family or individual. That's more than twice the national average. So that's why I say comparatively so, that's pretty good, at least from the statistics I looked at. Now, only our church treasurer, Bob Hannibal, knows those details, and they're in those envelopes that Larry referred to that you will pick up for tax purposes. The elders at Lion and Lamb and other leaders believe that it's best for us not to really have that information, to, to know how much individuals give because of the tendency, like it or not, to maybe give special influence to or favoritism to somebody based upon how important their giving is to the church. So we don't really know who gives what, and I think that's an important thing. Another thing about giving here is even though we average over 4,000 per giver to the church, it is my guess that most of those givers also contribute significantly to other ministries, things that are either local or national, things like Rescue Mission, Haiti Lifeline, other Christian ministries that you believe are worthy of support, missionaries, when you add that to the giving to lion and lamb, I would say, when I said twice the national average, that's for twice the national average for all charitable giving, I would guess when we add to that other giving that we have here that we might be as high as three times the national average. So that's good, but before your heads swell too much in terms of how good a givers we are, I think we still need to consider our giving with respect to the way Jesus believes giving should take place. And we'll, we'll come to that, too, as we go for, forward more. Now, what's the right amount to give? In 2 Corinthians 8.12, says, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Now, that's a important passage about this because, first of all, it's emphasizing that our willingness to give is what's probably as important as anything. That is our heart condition. But there's some other points. What do we have available to give? Some of you may be in a position where you have family, siblings, others in great financial need and you're helping them. And what does Paul teach in his letter to Timothy? In 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says that we have a responsibility to use our resources to care for parents and immediate family, and if we don't do so, we're worse than unbelievers. So we have a responsibility to care for them, perhaps even before any other giving. Now, it may not take away totally other giving, but it may influence how much we have to give. And I think God sees that and knows how much we have left to give, whether it's to the church or other Christian ministries, because of, of things such as that. And there may be a time of life when, when your financial needs within your own family, your own personal 
may be very great and things that you can't avoid. So I think that Paul opens the door up here for our giving to be influenced by what we have. What we give is influenced by what we have. Another uh, verse that is relevant comes from the disciples giving at the church of Antioch. In Acts chapter 11, verse 29, says the disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. Again, it emphasizes the person's capability to give as they were able. Now, how are we able to give? If we're going to come down to what is our capability to give, does it mean that we uh, only give after we take care of all those needs and wants and high lifestyle? That's how we're able. We're only able after we make sure we take care of ourselves. I would say that that um, does not agree with Jesus' basic teaching about the call to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. We could, we could put a different word in there, deprive ourselves of some of the things we want daily instead of just deny, deprive, something we want. Is that what his expectation is when he says deny self and take up the cross daily, forgetting about self for a minute, for a day, for a week? That may be more what he's really getting at here. Now, most of us are able to actually follow this, deny yourself. When it comes to deny yourself so that you can take care of your wife, your spouse, um, your kids, maybe even your parents, it's a lot easier to deny self for them. But is it so easy to deny self for those who are outside of our immediate family or circle of friends? It's a lot harder, especially when we have other needs that, are, uh, that we're facing when we uh, decide how much to give. So that is a hard part of this, to give sacrificially to people outside of this immediate circle. And how do we do that? Well, just got a couple ideas here. And one is from Philippians 2, 3, and 4 that says, In humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Paul followed that command with saying that we should have the same mind as Jesus himself. And we know what he did. He humbled himself and went to the cross and gave his own life for us. We're not necessarily called to go that far, but we might be called to consider others above ourselves. In fact, we're commanded to do so. Jesus gave us a bit of a secret to being able to think that way. And that is from Matthew 22:39, that says where he told us to love our neighbor as ourself, which is one of the two great commandments, the other being to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's much easier to give to someone if you love them as you love yourself. I think we would say that's the way it is between me, my wife, my husband, my children. We love them as we love ourselves, and we place them even above ourselves. But we're called to do that outside of that circle. Now, I've been talking mostly about financial gifts here, but giving to God is about a lot more than just giving money or giving to the way he wants us to give to others. 
You've all heard this before, these uh, three T's that God wants us to give, our time, our talent, and our treasure. And I think we all have an idea of what we're talking about here, whether it's giving time and talent. The treasure's the money. I'll focus on the time and the talent here. That the giving within the church, our time and talent, you could think of all kinds of things, whether it's serving in the nursery, Sunday school, the people out at the door welcoming, hospitality, cleanup, special events, all kinds of things that you can give time and talent, not costing you money. In the neighborhood, you can do the same. In the workplace, you can do the same. You can uh, just be looking out for a neighbor that seems to need some help because either they're sick or they've got special demands on their family at a certain time to contribute that help, which is time, talent. If you're good at fixing things, uh, you might want to keep your eyes open and try to figure out how you might help those things. Men, you can uh, give your time around the house, too. You can complete that job that your wife has wanted done. You can play with the kids. You can skip that golf round or whatever else you might prefer doing with your time. There's other things we can give that don't cost anything. We can give words of encouragement. We can recognize accomplishments by saying something encouraging to someone, even if our situation is not so good. You know, it's really hard to give words of encouragement to someone when you're struggling, when you're suffering. But that is giving in a way that will please God, to give when you're suffering in some way. We can give thanks, whether it's to God or others. Giving thanks and gratitude is always a gift. We can give by praying. There's other things we can give. We can give blood. We can let somebody go ahead of us in the line. We're giving our space to someone else, to our seat to someone else. When we have the potluck next, next week, we can give to the person behind us in line by not taking the last piece of chicken. <laughs> right? There's a lot of ways we can give. And men, you can give the remote of the TV to your wife. <laughs> Did you hear that, men? You can give the remote to your wives when you're watching TV because sometimes they might like to choose what to watch or the volume or whatever. I'd like to end with a passage that emphasizes how important true giving is to Jesus. It's a passage from Matthew 25, and it begins by talking about sheep and goats as symbols of the people who are going to be separated in the final judgment. The goats are going to be cast into the eternal lake of fire, and the sheep are going to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. I'm going to read a part about the sheep, not the whole passage, because they're the ones who gave in a way that pleased Jesus, and the goats didn't. Now, this is only part of that whole passage. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. You gave hospitality. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, 
and you gave your time, I inserted that, to come visit me. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers, you did for me. So, um, in this same chapter, Jesus condemns the the goats, representing those who did not give to the least of these. They ignored the plight of the hungry, the thirsty, the strangers, the sick, and those in prison. So undoubtedly, Jesus is thinking and teaching that giving has to extend beyond our family, our friends, and our church. It has to extend to the least of these, whoever they may be, in our sphere of life. Now, this teaching is scary because what it does is it says if our hearts are reluctant to give to those who Jesus calls the least of these, if we're turning away from those who need the most and we are able to give, it could mean that we truly don't know the Lord. And that has serious implications with respect to our salvation. Now, I do not want to end with the impression that we're saved by works. We know that's wrong. We're saved because of our faith in God, the grace of God. And that's what the main point of that is. But, however, we also know that spoken faith without good works is dead. That's from James. Faith without fruit, without love for others, without love for those who Jesus called the least of these or our neighbors elsewhere, Maybe no faith at all. This point at the top is important here because giving does not save, but a saved person will give. At the end of your handout, there are some questions that are self-examination questions, and I encourage you to take a look at those to have an idea whether just take a look today or sometime this week to see whether your giving is the way that you believe would please God the most. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've blessed us so much with so much in this country. Even if we aren't the richest in this country, we're rich compared to so much of the rest of the world. Help us, Lord, to have eyes that see the needs around us and hearts that are willing to give in a way that pleases you. Help us to give and not expect to receive anything in return. We pray, Lord, that instead we uh, would give in a way that is just a blessing to others and a blessing to us, not necessarily materially now, but eternally with you. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.